The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away to their own homes, but Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni which is to say, teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. But if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's what the Lord asked for us is faith. And so just a little bit will do. That's all he asked for. Now, before I read you the sermon text today, I want to read something. Two weeks ago, I did the sermon on the um, redemption, the uh, remission, the Shemitah. And after I, when I got home, a guy that attends online, he's a Navy SEAL, by the way, still active duty. Uh, he sent me something. Now, I normally will sit and I'll look things over and think on them. And I don't like to read things that I have not thought through completely. And I have not done that with this. It was two weeks ago, and I've had no free time hardly at all. Um, but it was interesting enough where I included it at the bottom of the website with his name on there. And uh, I thought that I would read this to you so you can see 
that there are pictures, and I'll miss things as well. And some of these I am certain are correct, but I'm not going to say all of them are until I have thought it through. But it's interesting. This is his words. The sermon mentions the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. Christ was offered in the third year of his ministry, so I see a parallel to the third year tithe. The stranger reflects the state of the Gentiles, which is Ephesians 2.12, the orphan, those cut off from the father, and the widow, those that need a kinsman redeemer. I find the term a third referenced as interesting in that Jesus is a third of the Godhead offered for the poor. The first two years, they, meaning Israel, consumed their portion or tithe for themselves, as Christ stated that he came for the lost children of Israel. But after that, the blessing was to go to everyone else who needed it. In essence, Jesus is our tithe. I came from a different uh, direction, but the abundance God gave us Also, for those that were far away, they can change their blessing, which had become a burden for money. And in the Hebrew, the word for money is kesef. It's silver. Silver represents redemption and blood, which is exactly what this feast is about. Jesus came to, or not feast, what this uh, mandate is. Jesus said, come to me, you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest for my burden is light. Judas was paid the price of a female slave. You could also say Christ paid for us with 30 pieces of silver and his blood to make our burden light, taking on our sin debt so that we can be in the presence of God and rejoice in the Lord. So it's rather interesting. There there are parallels there. I was excited enough to just simply put it on the website and to thank him for that. And he said I could read that. But um, as I said, I always want to think things through, even if something sounds right. And I do that with every sermon. But there's enough correct information here where I feel strong enough to put it on the website. And someday when I have five minutes or 50 minutes or five hours, I will give that a full evaluation. But I want to thank Chris for that because it really is marvelous. This is our sermon, our Resurrection Day sermon. This is Isaiah 26, verse 19. Your dead shall live. Isaiah 26, 19 says, Your dead shall live. Together with my dead body, they shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in dust, for your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Isaiah 24 through 27 is referred to as Isaiah's apocalypse. There is judgment, woe, and death recorded there, but there is also restoration in life. Scholars argue over the context and whether the words are referring to an actual resurrection or whether they are being used figuratively when speaking of enemies in a conflict. For example, the words, your dead shall live, could be speaking of actual dead, or it could be speaking of the state of Israel in a dead condition and sorely needing revival. The next words, together with my dead body, they shall arise, are more complicated. The words together with are inserted and immediately give an impression that is not necessarily intended. The Hebrew reads, my dead body, they shall arise. Thus, it may be two separate clauses, my dead body and they shall arise. In other words, my dead body is a singular construct and thus it would refer collectively to the dead of the Lord. Then, as individuals, they shall arise, being third-person plural, would refer to each individual of that body arising. But what does it mean? Again, this could be figurative language, speaking of Israel in a hopeless condition, but being spiritually revived, as in the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel 37. Or it could be referring to the actual dead of the Lord being brought back to life. At the end of Isaiah's apocalypse in Isaiah 27, it refers to the great trumpet being blown that will bring Israel's outcasts back to the land. That is echoed by Jesus in Matthew 24, verse 31. Both speak of a time of great trouble for Israel, a time of hiding for the Lord's people, and then a time of regathering of the people. Having said that, there is no reason to not take this in both a literal and a figurative sense. Israel, as a nation, is seen as a template of what God does in Christ for the individual believer. As elsewhere, the words then could have a twofold significance. The point and purpose of the coming of the Messiah is that of restoration and life. There is a problem that needs fixing, and we cannot fix it. And the Lord sent Christ Jesus to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Our text verse comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It is verse 20. 
for all the promises of God in him are yes and in him amen to the glory of God through us. The day before typing this Resurrection Day sermon, after a long day of church, video editing, and so on, I was sitting at the table having dinner when Sergio emailed me and asked about this particular verse from 2 Corinthians. He said, I'm not sure what it means in context. I've heard pastors take it out of context. At first, well, that seems contradictory, doesn't it? But he knew what they were saying was out of context, even if he couldn't put his finger on what the correct context was. As I had lamb chop all over my fingers, and as I was wiped out from the day's work, I simply punted and sent him the link to my 2 Corinthians commentary. Five minutes later, he excitedly emailed back, citing my commentary. Christ is the incarnate answer to the promises of God. He then said, woo-wee. It makes all the sense in the world now with a lot of exclamation points. I have tears understanding this verse now. His use of accompanying emoticons was quite impressive. (laughs) He then said, all the pastors and recent famous worship songs that I've heard made this verse about me and us, but it's all about Christ fulfilled in him. With that, I really wanted to know what someone else had said about the verse to get him so inquisitive at 1 a.m. Israel time. His answer was, and this is his words, he's speaking about the pastor now. He said, paraphrase, what's your purpose in life? What's your motive? It's important to establish one. Paul's purpose was to share the gospel amongst the nations while being imprisoned. But we are free. So our purpose is to have eternal life, get better life, and get God's promises for us, the promises of yes and amen and the Spirit. With that, I called the guy's analysis minty bubbles. They taste good, but they have no substance. The sad part was that he said it was a discipleship video for young believers. The next morning, Sergio said he was still thinking about the verse from the night before. My response was, and here are my words back to him in an email, me too. The minty bubbles are not completely wrong, but they have come at the idea the wrong way. If they are treating the reception of the promises as being first directed to us, it is a self-centered doctrine. If we acknowledge that all promises of God are fulfilled in Christ, then it is a Christ-centered doctrine. The secondary reception is us. Now, obviously, there would be no need to send Jesus if we didn't exist, but the purpose is not for us to be exalted or blessed apart from Christ. Rather, it is for us to exalt God because he did this for us through Jesus. We are the recipients, but the purpose is the glory of God. Whether Isaiah's words immediately speak of a spiritually dead condition of Israel or not, They convey a literal truth that God has done something in the world of which we are the recipients of that effort. It is true that there would have been no need for it to have been done if we didn't exist. But the purpose of the doing wasn't so that we would have abundance and prosperity. Rather, the purpose of what he has done is first and foremost to bring glory to himself. The good that we receive is not the purpose. It is the result. Today is Resurrection Day 2021, but Resurrection Day is a day that comes after Good Friday. There would have been no resurrection without Christ's death first, and there would have been no need for Christ's death if we weren't already separated from God. Let us remember this. What God has done is because we are in a pit. God promised to get us out of that pit, and God sent Jesus to make that possible. To God be the glory. This is a truth that is to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have a couple of thoughts for you today. The first is sadness at the graveside. Regardless as to whether Isaiah's words are to be taken figuratively, literally, or both, the fact that we could even debate them tells us that we have an understanding of what it means to die. And of that which results from death. Taking the words and analyzing them from a negative perspective shows us this. In saying, your dead shall live, it means that something is dead. If we are talking about something that is dead, we are by default referring to something that was alive. 
We don't talk about rocks being dead. They were never alive, and so we don't speak of them in that way. When someone says, my car died, it means that it is stopped running. It is not in the state it was intended to be, such as the case with people. We are alive, and then we die. To say, you're dead, signifies a close and personal connection to the dead. If someone in Bolivia dies, there's nothing close and personal to us, unless we are from Bolivia. We wouldn't say to a person from Czechoslovakia, you're dead, when referring to the dead guy from Bolivia. When the Lord, through Isaiah, says, your dead shall live, it is confirming that there was a personal connection to the dead. If you take the Bible as the truth of man's history on the earth, as you should, then you know that death was never the intent for people. God created man for a particular purpose. In the Genesis narrative, when did he create the man? Was it on the first day? On the second day? On the third day? No. When God created man, it was on the sixth and final day of his creative effort. And not only did he do it on the sixth day, he did it at the end of the sixth day, after creating the land animals. Man was the crowning aspect of the creation, the finishing touch. Everything was prepared for him first, and then the Lord God worked the dust, formed the man, and called him to life. Chapter 2 of Genesis immediately began with, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Only after stating that does it go back and fill in the information left out of chapter 1. God created man on the sixth day. And then it says that he, the Lord, planted a garden in Eden and placed the man there. The word used in Genesis 2 verse 15 is yanach. It means to lay down, to set, and so on. It is from the same root as nuach, meaning to rest. The verb, being causative, signifies that the Lord rested the man in the garden. It then says that he was rested there for a purpose. Most translations say that the action was so that man could tend and keep the garden. But that is not the intent at all. Such a translation causes a gender discord between the verbs and the object of those verbs. Also, if the man was rested in the garden, it would make no sense to have him tend the garden. This is especially so for two reasons. The first is that the man was created on the sixth day. The seventh day is a day of rest, and that day, according to Hebrews 4, verse 3, continues on forever. God worked and then rested. The second reason is that the man's responsibility was not to the garden, but to God. The man was not rested there to tend and keep the garden, but to worship and serve the Lord. This is the purpose of the Sabbath. The seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord. In Exodus, the Lord provided the manna for the people, and they were to rest, not work. This was to recall to their minds the rest that man had lost. God created man at the end of his week of work. He rested the man in the garden after the work was complete. The relationship was to be one of worshiping and serving the Lord in intimate fellowship. My friend Kyle picked up on this while watching the Genesis sermon and helped me to expand on it for this sermon. It is in this state of rest that man was to live. As it was in fellowship with God, the intent was that it was to be forever. But intent and result are not always the same. The Lord gave the man a choice, a garden of delight and life, or the knowledge of good and evil and death. The very fact that death was an option means that the other option was not just life, but life without death. One tree was law, you shall not eat of its fruit, while the other tree was grace. It was simply there in the garden with no prohibition attached to it. Man chose life under the law by choosing the fruit forbidden by the law. But as Paul tells us, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. That's 1 Corinthians 15, verse 56. And the word confirms that. The Lord said to the man in Genesis 3:19, In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So, there is what Isaiah is referring to. 
The man was taken from the dust and he became a living being. The man would return to the dust because he was no longer alive. In saying, you're dead, he was noting that they were once alive. In saying, they shall live, he is indicating that this state of death would end. The Lord then says through Isaiah, Nebalati Yakumum, my dead body, they shall arise. The people are of the Lord, and they are his dead body, meaning his body of people who have died. That is a stated fact, but it doesn't explain how they became his dead body. That is a completely separate part of the matter, and it also goes back to the Genesis narrative. The man failed to accept the grace, and instead he opted for the law, meaning disobeying it. The serpent deceived the woman, calling into question the truth of the Lord's word. But it was in the act of eating the fruit of the tree, the fruit forbidden by the Lord, meaning in violating the law, that death resulted. The law was given, violating the law was sin, and death was the inevitable result. It was the consequence. As Paul says in Romans 3.20, by the law is the knowledge of sin. If the Lord had put the tree in the garden and said nothing about eating its fruit, then they could have eaten it and not died. It isn't the fruit, but the violating of the law that brought the death. As this is so, then it cannot be by the law that life can come. When Isaiah says, my dead body, while referring to the people of the Lord, it cannot be by the law that they became his dead body, only that they became dead by the law. So how did they become his, if not by the law? The answer is introduced in the curse upon the serpent from Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The Lord promised that the seed of the woman would come to correct the matter. Shortly after that was stated, and after the Lord told the man that he would toil the ground until he returned to the dust... The account says, Genesis 3.20, And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. The man was told that he would die on the day that he ate the forbidden fruit. He then was told that he would toil all the days of his life until he returned to the dust. Obviously, and putting two and two together, he was able to grasp that he was already dead in one sense. And then he would also die in another sense because he was still alive. Thus, death has more than one meaning. As this is so, then life has more than one meaning as well. In calling his wife Eve, he was acknowledging this. Her name is Chava. That's the Hebrew for Eve. It means life. Abarim, in analyzing the name, says the name Eve denotes the collectivity that is common to the behavior of living things. In this, they translate her name, symbiosis. There is a commonality to the life that would come through her. In other words, Adam had come to understand that the life that he had lost would be restored. He did this while standing there as a living, breathing man. And therefore, he could not be thinking of physical life at all, but of the spiritual life that he had lost. This was his death that occurred on the day that he ate of the fruit. But he had believed what the Lord said concerning the one who would come to crush the serpent. In his belief, it then says, verse 321 from Genesis, Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. The clear implication is that this action by the Lord was in response to the man's naming of his wife. They were there, dead, and yet he called her life. Not because of the life they possessed, but because of the life that they would possess. Everybody seeing this? If not, read it a couple times and you'll get it. Adam believed and the Lord covered the man's nakedness. As these were garments of skin, it means that the Lord took an animal and slayed it in order to cover Adam. A transfer was made. An innocent died. A guilty one was covered, all because of a simple act of faith. The Lord was, at that time, showing what pleased him. He was also showing, in typology, how he would come to cover all who pleased him, meaning by their faith, not by the law, but by their faith. However, there are consequences for our actions, even if our sins are covered. 
In his sentence upon the man, the Lord had said that he would toil for his food until he returned to the dust. But the garden is a place of rest, not toil. And in the garden is the tree of life by which man can eat and live forever. Because of these things, the man was driven out from the garden to abad or work the ground. It is the same word that was used of his purpose in the garden, but with an entirely different context. He was to worship and serve the Lord. Now he would serve the ground. The rest in the place of rest was removed from him because he was removed from it. From this point on, every single thing in Scripture, in one way or another, is given to reveal how man would be returned to that lost rest in the place of rest. Adam, though destined to die, had found the way to life. The narrative then immediately went from the account in the garden to the two sons of Adam and Eve. With very little in the narrative to explain why things turned out as they did, a contrast is set between the offerings the two made to the Lord. The Lord accepted the offering of Abel, and he rejected the offering of Cain. However, there is enough said that the author of Hebrews explains what the difference between the two was. It wasn't the type of offering, but the attitude behind the offering. Of this, he says, Hebrews 11:4, By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead, still speaks. The offering of Abel was one of faith. This is what made the offering more excellent. It was a hope-filled offering anticipating the life that was promised to his parents. Cain's offering lacked this, and it was rejected. From there, Hebrews 11 lists one person after another from one biblical account after another, and each time he does, he introduces him or her with the words, by faith. The deed or act they did is placed secondary to the idea of it being a deed or act of faith. It is this, then, that distinguishes the people of God from all others. And it is those who died in faith that are collectively called my dead body in Isaiah 26. It is of this group of whom it then says, they shall arise. They are alive because of faith, even if they are dead in the body. Someday their bodies will arise because the life is in them, and that is because they have believed the word of the Lord, meaning the seed of the woman will come to accomplish his work. It is this simple hope that gives life even in a body of death. We know this is the case and that it is not by a particular genealogy that life is granted. It is true that a particular genealogy was selected in order to bring in the Messiah, but being a part of that genealogy or not has no bearing on whether one is truly of the Messiah. We know this is true because the line through which the Messiah comes is through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But from Jacob, it is only through Judah that he would come. And yet all 12 sons of Israel possessed the same hope, even though they were not all in his direct genealogy. And we also know it is true because at times in the narrative, people are brought in from outside of the 12 sons of Israel, and they also possessed that same hope. Some of them were even brought directly into the line of the Messiah through marriage. And we also know it's true because Job was not of this genealogy at all. And yet his record of interaction with the Lord and the faith he possessed assures us that he too possessed the same life as those of faith in Israel. As he himself said in Job 19, And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another how my heart yearns within me. Only a person with a complete lack of understanding or a personal bias against such a notion would argue that Job is not included in the collective described as my dead body. Indeed, when they arise, Job will be among them. It is the hope in Messiah that makes it so. Job's faith made him a son of God. It is the amount of available revelation that sets the boundaries of this saving faith. One cannot have faith in a false Messiah. As the revelation of God concerning him is increased, it is the responsibility of the individual to accept what has been presented and to believe it. This is why the Jew who has rejected Jesus Christ will not be saved. 
God has provided the increased revelation. This has been rejected, and his trust is in something other than the Lord's provision. On the other hand, Job's understanding of the promise was far more limited. He had the word passed down from Adam until Noah, and then from Noah down to him. As limited as his understanding was, it was enough. He sought after God, knowing that God had a plan and a purpose for him because of the promise. He had faith in that promise, and by faith, the Bible calls him a son of the God, meaning the true God. This is the pattern set forth for man to be saved, and faith in the promise is the expectation. There may be sadness at the graveside for those who mourn for their dead, but for those who have lived in faith, they shall rise. For those who mourn and yet know this, it is a mourning of temporary loss, but also of hope-filled anticipation. Because of Messiah, there is a day coming when there will be a blessed reunion. Your dead body shall live, they shall rise to life again. My dead body will not be lost, they shall arise. To them life I give, the faithful sons of men, the gift without money and without cause, even a glorious prize. Awake and sing, you who dwell in dust, you shall rise again when I make the call, because in my son you placed your trust, no more shall you be covered by death's terrible pall. For your dew is like the dew of lights, reinvigorating the soul, and the earth shall cast out the dead. You shall receive heavenly rites. You are entered on the scroll. The days of dust are gone, replaced with beauty instead. Our second thought today is to the glory of God. As we opened, I told you about Sergio's inquiry concerning 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20. He seemed almost dejected about what he had heard from others. The reason this was so is that they had made the plan of God me-centered. That is fine if you want the Bible and indeed your life to be all about you. But if it is all about you, it is actually a sincerely vapid existence and a truly miserable hope that you have. Sergio caught on to this and so it caused an internal conflict in him. The promises of God are to us, but they are realized in Christ. He is the incarnate answer to the promises of God. When Sergio saw the clarity of what Paul is conveying, he was moved to tears. One can see the contrast between Cain and Abel. Cain, like that pastor that Sergio cited, would have been elated at the news that God's promises are realized in him. Abel, on the other hand, like Sergio, would have been appalled. Me? That's why I'm bringing you this offering. It's not about me, but about my hope in what you have promised. Abel had a hope beyond this earthly life. It was a hope of rest in the place of rest that his parents had once known. Someday his hope will be realized. Think about it. Think about the hope. Is your hope in this world? Because if it is, it's going to be over and there'll be nothing left. Abel saw beyond that, and he said, I want what God has promised. Cain just wanted to get ahead in this life. Everybody see that? As Isaiah says, Hakitsu ve'ranenu shokene afar. Awake and shout for joy, dwellers of dust. It takes the reader right back to Genesis 3 once again. In the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. The man from the dust would return to the dust. Likewise, so would all who follow him. But for those who lived in faith, that state would not be final. In the curse upon the serpent, he was told that he would eat the dust. But despite this, he would not prevail over the faithful who had returned to the dust. Everybody see the symbolism? He's there eating the dust, the dead of all people but he's not going to have victory over them. The hope of Messiah is that the bonds of death would be broken. Those the earth had reclaimed would be brought forth once again to shout aloud in joy. If you think about it, it is right that man is born, that he lives, and that he dies in this hope. Generation after generation, it is so. And it is telling us that when our renewal comes, it is because of what he has done, not what we have done. If it were because of our deeds, the ground could not hold us. But it does. Even for 2,000 years, the ground has continued to hold us. Death has continued to reign, and the dust continues to receive more. And yet those who hope continue to hope. If it were merely God's promises fulfilled in us, they surely would have been fulfilled by now. 
But being God's promises fulfilled in Christ, every single soul that is added to those who will rise only increases the glory. Someday the call will be made and those in the dust shall awaken. Isaiah describes how this will happen, saying, Kitao orot talecha, for dew lights your dew. It is a poetic way of saying that the dew that settles upon those dead is like the dew that comes in the morning. When the completeness of the light shines forth, everything is nourished by this morning dew, and it is brought to vigor. In the same manner, a time is coming when life will suddenly and completely be reinvigorated into those who dwell in the dust. They will reanimate in a new form, and they will come forth. Paul describes the two states as they were and as they will be. From 1 Corinthians 15, the first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. This change will be so sudden and so abrupt because of the reinvigorating power of Jesus Christ that Isaiah continues with the words, Ba'aretz Rephaim Tapil, and land ghosts will overthrow. It is a poetic way of saying that the place where the dead are will be cast down and defeated. That is again reflective of the words of Paul from 1 Corinthians 15. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? This is the promise and this is the wonder that we anticipate each year as we celebrate Resurrection Day. But before we finish, we need to remember that in order for Christ to come forth from the grave, he first had to go to the grave. Adam disobeyed God. Through this, sin entered the world and death came through that sin. From there, the Bible reveals that death spread to all men because, as Paul says, all sinned. In other words, because we were in Adam when he sinned, we bear the guilt of Adam. This is true in several ways. It is true legally because Adam is our federal head. He is the first man from whom all other men would come. Just as the leader of a nation represents its citizens, so Adam represents all who come from Adam. It is true potentially. In Genesis chapter 5, we read this, And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. After he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years, and he had sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. We have no idea how many children Adam had. It could have been 10, or it could have been 150. All were potentially in him, and all that were born actually came from him. In the same way, any normally functioning person could have any number of children, or they could have no children. Every person who comes after someone is potentially in that person. And any number of possible people could come from that same stream. And it is true seminally. Acts 17 verse 26 says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Again, in Hebrews chapter 7, Levi is said to be in the loins of Abraham, and that because he was, he paid tithes to Melchizedek through Abraham, even though he wasn't yet born, and even though he wouldn't come for three more generations. He was seminally in his father before he ever existed. Because of these things, all of us are in Adam in these three ways, and thus we all bear his sin in these same ways. We are born spiritually dead, as we saw from the account of Cain and Abel. There is a disconnect between us and God, and there is a sentence of condemnation hanging over our heads from the moment of our conception. It is a sentence that is merely waiting to be executed. If you don't believe me, go read John 3.18. Everybody knows John 3.16? John 3.18? 
if you don't believe in the Son, you're condemned already. It's already done. As this is so, something external needs to be introduced in order for the sentence to be changed from condemnation to restoration. The way that external correction came about was for God himself to unite with human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. He did this in the womb of Mary. As his father is God, he did not receive Adam's sin because sin travels from father to child. If you're a woman or a man, you had a human father. Christ did not. He had a human mother, but God is his father. He was born, therefore, qualified to cover our sins, just as the innocent animal's skin covered Adam and Eve of their nakedness. Further, Christ Jesus was born under the law of Moses, the covenant that God made between himself and the people of Israel. In that covenant, he stipulated that the man who did the things of the law would live by them. Everybody remember that? I've I've cited that particular verse 10,000 times since then, and I never exaggerate. Christ already had life in him, but being born under the law, he had to fulfill that law. This is what the Gospels then record. The Son of Man was born without sin, and he lived out the law without ever sinning, proving himself not only qualified, but capable. He did what we could not do because the sin already existed in us. And then, in fulfillment of the law, he died. In other words, as he had no sin, and as he committed no sin, the law found its completion in him. In its completion, it ended, and a new covenant replaced it. It is the Christ covenant. It is the fulfillment of what was promised. It is what Adam anticipated when he named his wife Life. It is what Abel anticipated when he made his offering. It is what Job hoped for when he sat and spoke with those with him. Christ Jesus gave up his life so that we could be granted what we could not otherwise possess. In his death, God provided an atonement, a covering for sin. And that covering is offered in the exact same manner for us as it was for those in the past, meaning by faith. Adam had faith and was covered. That was only a type of what God would do in Jesus Christ. Now in Christ, the full, the final, and the forever covering of sin is granted for those who simply believe. Though it has been 2,000 years, God is still imputing to his people the same righteousness in the exact same way. And with each person who accepts the premise and is saved, the glory to God increases. Sergio asked about Paul's words concerning Christ. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. The answer is that God's promises are fulfilled in Christ. From there, and only from there, do those promises then belong to us. Jesus Christ is the answer to the problem that plagues us. His death is the remedy for our condition. In his burial, he bore our sin into the grave. And his resurrection is the proof that this is so. The atonement is made, the sin is expiated, the life is granted, and eternity lies just ahead for those who will, by faith, accept the premise and receive what God has done through him. This is the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus, and this is the grace of God that says, I have done the work so that you may enter my rest. Go back to the sixth day. When did he create Adam? The sixth day at the end of the day, and then he rested, and before he rested, he put the man in the place of rest. He's done all of the work. We receive all of the benefits, but only because of what he has done in his son, Jesus Christ, because we're the ones that got ourselves kicked out of the garden in the first place. This is the most wonderful book in the world because it is without any contradiction and I feel sad for people that find contradiction in it because there is none. I've studied this enough that I can tell you the people that find a contradiction, they just didn't look hard enough. Please be wise and receive this wonderful gift of life and restoration. May it be so and may it be today. Jesus Christ loves you that much, folks. It's the only thing I can do once a year is to make this appeal for the people that may tune in to a Resurrection Day sermon and say, I just want to know what Christ has done or what this is all about. It's all about God's glory. 
and we are the recipients of what he has done to receive that glory from us. Please call on Jesus Christ. Accept that you can't save yourself. I'm going to tell you what, you are going to die. If you think you're immortal, you're wrong. You are going to die, and you are going to die in one condition and only one. It'll either be in Christ or it'll be apart from Christ. And you will set your eternal destiny. It is your choice. Please make the choice today. It's so simple. Christ died for your sins, implying that you're a sinner. Christ was buried with your sins. Christ rose again, meaning your sins are still in the grave because he came out without any sin at all. If he had sinned still, he never would have come out of the grave. The wages of sin is death. But praise be to God, he came out of the grave. Next week is Deuteronomy 15. It's verses 12 through 23. So hard to imagine, and yet it's true. It's entitled, The Lord Your God Redeemed You. That'll be our 48th Deuteronomy sermon. Wonderful stuff. Deuteronomy, what a book it is, huh? Are you enjoying it? I'm, I'm loving every new sermon that comes along. Okay, I've got a question for you, and then I'll read you a poem, and we'll take the Lord's Supper. Last week was Palm Sunday, okay? I couldn't think of anything. I've covered enough where you're going to get anything obvious, so I'm going back to last Sunday where you've forgotten all of what we talked about. (laughs) What book and chapter of the Old Testament says that Jesus would come to Israel riding on a donkey? Chapter and book. Book and chapter. Not Psalms. Zechariah. You got to give me the chapter. I'll give you one wheel of this YF22. That's all I know, but the doctor. 15. 8. Nine. Who said nine? Okay, we've got we've got Zechariah chapter nine. Somebody, whoever whoever got the closest to that gets a pin. You can give it to a lady or you can whatever. There's a pin over here from Alana, our sweet girl over in Fort Lauderdale. Her family, the Jennings family, has come here several times. Two sisters and mom and dad, wonderful people. She sent us some pins. So take a pen today and give it to somebody if you don't want it. If you're a guy, if you're a girl, put it on your thing and be proud of it. Okay, um, got a poem here for you. Yes? I don't think you did the closing verse. Closing verse. Oh, yeah, let me do a closing verse for you. Thank you. This is from 1 Corinthians 15, it's verses 20 through 23. I quoted a lot from 1 Corinthians 15 today. It's because it's the most hope-filled chapter that you can think of. It's all about our relationship to God and God's victory over death and our our joining in to that victory. So here we go. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits means that you're cutting off something and you're presenting it to God and saying, there is a harvest coming after this. It's just a representation of what is coming in a great field. Okay. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. Coming soon to a rapture near you. Okay, short poem and we'll be done. This is called The Celebration of the Resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel which was preached to you. It is also the one you received and on which you stand. It is the gospel of salvation providing life that's new and which will carry you to the promised holy land. What is delivered to you is what was before received, that Christ died for our sins according to God's word. He was buried and he rose, and so we have believed, and many witnesses testify to this message you have heard. Now, if Christ has preached that he is risen from the dead, how can some among you say the resurrection isn't true? If there is no resurrection after Christ was crucified and bled, then our faith, as well as yours, is certainly askew. And if so, we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified wrongly of this mighty deed. And our faith is futile, no heavenly streets we will trod, and we are still dead in our sins, fallen Adam's seed. Even more, those who have fallen asleep in the Lord are gone, and we are the most pitiable creatures the world could ever look upon. But indeed, Christ is risen from the dead. He is the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. And as death came through one man, Adam, our federal head, so Christ will make all alive. Our souls he will keep. But there is an order to the resurrection call. Christ was first, 
the pattern for the rest when he comes. When he does, he will make a shout out to us all, and we will rise as if to the sound of heavenly battle drums. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to the Father, when all rule, authority, and power have come to an end. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, never more to bother. Then the Son will to the Father eternal rule extend. But you ask, what will we be like after our time of sleep, after we have been buried in corruption's pit so deep? Our body is sown in dishonor, but it will be raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, but will be raised in power, the resurrection story. The first man, Adam, became a living being, it is true. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit, life to me and you. And as was the man of dust created so long ago, so are those likened unto him, also made of dust. And as is the man, the Lord from heaven, you know that we shall bear his image for eternity, just as we've discussed. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit that which is incorrupt. But we shall all be changed, and so heavenly streets we will trod. In the twinkling of an eye, the change will be abrupt. When the last trumpet sounds, we will be taken to glory. We shall all be changed. Completion of the gospel story. Where, O death, oh, where is your sting? When Christ our Savior, us to himself, does he bring? Where, O Hades, oh, where is your victory? When Christ translates his children to eternal glory. The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord. My beloved brethren, be steadfast in all you've heard and saw and cling confidently to God's eternal word. Know for certain that your labor is not in vain. Be of good cheer. Christ is coming again. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the hope that we have and that we possess in Jesus Christ. And thank you that it's a sure hope. We don't need to guess if this book is true. We can go through the many, many, many sermons that we've gone through in the past and through our own studies and future books of the Bible. And we know that everything aligns perfectly with the giving of your son for us. We know it. There's nothing we need to say, well, maybe this is a hope. This is not a maybe. We possess it because of what you have done for us through Jesus Christ. We receive the message. We receive the salvation. And we praise you forever and ever because of it. In the beautiful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.